Can you believe that this game has still never actually come out outside of Japan? Something about that is really weird to me. Like, <clears throat> it took a long time for a lot of games to come out outside of Japan. But bit by bit, especially the Squaresoft, or Squaresoft, Square Enix bundles, bit by bit they did. Just, you know, okay, here's Final Fantasy III, and here's Final Fantasy II, here's V, here's, uh, you know, the Star Ocean stuff. Inch by inch, all of these games did eventually come out. But this one has remained the exception. I did some research, and, and I guess I always do research, but I did research on this specific fact, and I found nothing even approaching an explanation. The best guess I have is that due to the frankly broken nature of the game, any actual re-release at this point in time outside of Japan would probably mandate someone going through and fixing it. Because this is a buggy-as-hell game. Now, that's funny because, if you remember, Secret of Mana, Second Sensei 2, was also a very buggy game. But this one is worse because this one is buggy and hard, and a lot of the difficulty of this game comes from the bugginess of it. It also isn't very informative. There are a lot of things you have to do that nothing in the game really indicates. So let me just go ahead and say that while I do recommend playing this game, uh, go grind and or use a game pack. You're going to need it. There are simply too many things that the game just does not tell you how it works. You can't even learn certain abilities unless you have the right stats, but which those stats are aren't really intuitive, and the game doesn't even properly explain how counterspelling or counterskilling or whatever you want to call that works, which also ramps the difficulty up significantly. And there's a lot of elemental weakness that's built into it, and the whole which element is strong and which day thing, which is only relevant a couple of times, but each time it is, it's relevant. And never mind the fact that it doesn't really properly explain to you what you get going down the light or dark paths, assuming you even get the second class change. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if most people who play this game didn't even realize there was a second class change towards the end of the game, which you get at level 38, I want to say which also requires you to go farm a very specific enemy, and the way that loot drops work in this game is only the enemy that dies last drops loot. So you need to farm a specific enemy in a bundle and make sure it drops last in order to ensure... It... There's issues, is what I'm trying to say. The, the, the game is also unforgivably hard at multiple points. Uh, everyone, of course knows about Zabel frickin' Fall, or, or Zabel Far, excuse me, screwing that up. Zabel Far, which, ugh. Um, the enemies usually get the same skills you do, it's just they don't require charge time. And a lot of the boss battles tend to specifically involve not just attacks that hit everyone and can't be dodged, but also attacks that hit everyone and can't be dodged that do status effects. And I don't just mean poisoning you. I mean deliberately lowering your stats or screwing up how you play. I still recommend this game. I swear, there are some good things. Um, I like the change. So in previous games, you had to charge up the bar and then swing. In this one, you hit, and that charges up your bar to do special attacks. Um, I also highly recommend you basically stick with your level 1 charge attacks. The level 2 and level 3 are fancy, but usually not worth the effort, which is funny because that was also true in Psalm. Um... 
I also do like what they do with the items rather than just having the cap of four, you know, the, the, the spillover concept and not having to really deal with that in combat. The ability to actually leave combat zones, there's basically an in combat status and an out of combat status. There's good stuff there. I do like what they did with the game overall. Um, I just think it needs a polishing pass. <laughs> this game also feels in many ways like a PlayStation 1 game. Uh, not, I, I don't mean that as a bad thing. Um, I mean that as like a, this game has so much in it, I'm astonished this thing fit on a, well, a Super Famicom cartridge, because holy hell. Which brings me to the story. This game is brilliantly designed. It takes a concept that was tested back in Secret of Mana and goes the next logical step with it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, back in Psalm, uh, pretty much up until you go to the Northern Forest, there are several different methods by which you can do things. You can go straight to the castle and then go get the girl and then take the girl to the forest and then take the girl to the to the area and then get the sprite. Or you can go straight to the sprite and then uh, go get the girl in the forest. Or you can get the girl in the forest, go to the sprite, lose the girl, get the sprite, go to the forest, get the girl. There are several different permutations. There's a, there's a couple little things. It doesn't really change the story that much. But it was like the beginnings of choice. SD3 goes way overboard on that one. Well, I shouldn't say overboard. But it's a, it, it goes much further with the same concept. Obviously, there's the three predominant stories. The best way to describe this visually is there's like a neutral story path, and then there's the independent paths of the three. So every now and again, you know, everyone does the same basic story element, but then there's the three branches for this section, and then they remerge to a neutral section, and then back to the three branches, etc. In that way, the... Uh, the overall narrative flow is maintained, even though you might be seeing fairly different events from what everyone else is. You will also generally see party members who you didn't actually recruit and encounter them periodically, as well as see hints of the other villains of the other teams and learn about events of the other nations and the wars that are happening. So the impression is that all three of the events of the game are happening right up until the crucial point, which is when you first reach the Holy Land, at which point it diverges completely and only one particular path happens from that point onward. So it's a cool approach to it, and I have played this game three times. For this rumination, I actually only played through once in order to uh, save on time, because I don't have time to play a game three times for rumination. But fortunately, as I said, I've played this, through this game before, so yay. <sighs> um, now would be a good time to mention continuity. The Mana series has always had a really weird approach to continuity. It feels like they're halfway Final Fantasy and halfway, you know, everything else. In the sense that they have recurring themes, recurring elements, recurring items, recurring characters that have nothing to do with the other versions. You know, the Ramu from FF6 has absolutely nothing to do with the Ramu from FF15, right? But, at the same time, this is all the same continuity. SD3 has the period of no mana, and then mana is rediscovered, which leads to the creation of the Great Empires, and blah, 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 which leads to Secret of Mana, or this is the Great Empires, depending on how you think of that. But either way, this leads to Secret of Mana, and Secret of Mana leads to SD1, Final Fantasy Adventure. You know, there's, there's a path there of, of story, and yet some of the aspects of characters and concepts don't quite linearly match up. The fact that the Dragon Emperor is actually in Legends of Mana is just kind of weird, and never mind the fact that Begu, I have no idea how you're supposed to pronounce it, by the way, Isabella, is actually in Sword of Mana, is also just kind of, huh? 
And despite everything, this does not appear to be Thanatos, the masked mage, uh, Belgar. He does not appear to be Thanatos, even though both of them have a lot of similarities, and in fact, he literally ends up as the Dark Lich. So I'm not really 100% sure which of these is canon and which is not. Even the very word Mavolia, or Mavol, Mavol, or Mavolian, isn't even mentioned in any of the three of these games, despite the fact that it's a recurring trend in all three of them. <laughs> so I'm not 100% sure what to say about the continuity of the series. So for this, we're basically going to be looking at this in a vacuum, with one exception. Uh, Heroes of Mana, I think it's Heroes, uh, happens 19 years before this game, is a direct and literal prequel to this game. You know, several of the characters from SD3 are actually in Heroes of Mana, so those two are much more clearly connected than the rest of them. It has also been argued by some people that there's just such huge gaps of time in between each of the games in the series that they might, that, you know, that that explains the, the lack of continuity, but to me that just feels like a weird thing. It'd be like writing a story set in 2400 BC in real life, and then writing a story set in 680, and then writing a story set now. Like, at that point, they're basically not contiguous. They, ex they happen to exist within the same setting, but that's about the level of continuity that exists, right? So, why bother? My opinion. <clears throat> One of the things I like about this game, and this will be something that will be coming up later this month as well when we cover Suikoden 3. I'm not sure off the top of my head when that's going to happen, but I know it's going to be after this one is the idea of a political drama war story that also happens to be a JRPG. Now, unlike Suikoden 3, which is predominantly the war story and happens to have JRPG elements, this is a JRPG that happens to have the war story elements. But I do like this approach to the storytelling. Two of the nations that, that go to war in this game do so for relatively understandable reasons. They are being provoked by otherwise evil powers... But they're not, if, if the evil powers didn't exist, these wars would probably still happen. The Beastmen still have their significant bias and the racial hatred, you know, the, the sins of the father concept uh, going on with the humans, having been abused and looked down upon as second-class citizens for so long that their attack of the city of Wendell is basically under, you know, that's probably what's going to happen regardless of Death Jester showing up, or the man who eats death. And Altina they were actually losing their, their ability to function. They were literally facing an environmental disaster. Now, there are probably other ways to deal with that, but, you know, other than Corrin whispering poison into her ear. But regardless, uh, Altina's war against uh, Forsina, or Forsena, I'm not sure, I, I don't know how to pronounce any of this stuff, um, against Duran's country, makes a lot of sense for the purpose of, it's basically the Final Fantasy IV thing again. We're declaring war on you, not to conquer you, but because we need something you have. And I like that in a weird way because that's very old-style war. When countries would go to war with each other, but after the victory, the winner wouldn't just claim the other country like it would in, say, civilization or whatever, but would instead say, okay, we won, we'll give you peace, sit down at the negotiating table, here's what we want. It's, it's always a weird thing to me to remember that for a lot of human history, wars were fought as a negotiating tactic. But that's kind of what Altine is doing here. And again, it adds a layer of believability and complexity to the story. It's also worth noting, just as a quick aside, that SD3 is really dark. This is easily the darkest of the Mana series by a wide margin. Um, 
there's a lot of death. There's a lot of slavery. Um, there is suicide on camera, suicide. Uh, there's uh, examinations of self. There's uh, abuse of people of different race or creed. This is a very, very dark game. Um, never actually crossed any boundaries for me personally, but I just want to toss that out there. I probably should have said that earlier. I do recommend you play this game if you uh, somehow have the availability to do so, but I digress. So back to the wars. So then we've got Navare. Now, actually, I take that back. So we've got Beastmen. They want to go after Wendell. That makes sense. Um, Altina, they want to go to war with Forcina. That makes sense. Because in one case we have racial and, and uh, cultural bias and prejudice and uh, oppression. And then in the other case we have the desire for a valuable resource. In, the, in Altina's case they want the Monostone. Navera's war against Rolante, on the other hand, um, it's, it's a very believable excuse. They're just not exactly what you'd call in the right here. Uh, their war is all about their desire to become a kingdom. This is something that's actually happened in real life a lot, where you've had... Um, a city-state or a military or an organization or whatever who's had a desire to become a kingdom or be or indeed uh, some cases you've had a democracy or a republic or you know some other form of government that has wanted to become a hereditary monarchy even a, uh, a constitutional monarchy several times has wanted to become a hereditary monarchy so it's the same kind of concept now again pushed by uh, evil lady, I'm, I'm going to not try to pronounce her name again, but it's very understandable. She, you know, we must be strong, and we must claim this power, and we must become part of the nation scenes, and blah, blah, blah. And it's funny because, from a purely military perspective, Rolante has, has them outgunned in every way, but they weren't really ready for the kind of attacks that the Navari would lead. And what's doubly funny is the Navari then had no idea that those attacks might have been used against themselves later on. You know, that kind of subterfuge works, but Yikes! The kind of massacres they put off as well is just a little bit ridiculous. It's also really weird to me that Bill and Ben have such a weirdly common presence in the game, given the fact that they have what is effectively just a basic uh, standard enemy sprite. But I'm getting off topic. So all three of these wars make a degree of sense. And that leads us to our main characters. <sighs> what I like most about the six main characters is that each of them is something and then either is shown to not be that something or grows out of that something during the course of the game. Now there are also, there's an, also another related point here I'll get to in a moment, but Angela is a great example that she's a brat. But it's demonstrated very early on that the big reason why Angela is such a brat is because of the fact that she was deliberately trying to get attention, which she wasn't getting and this is funny because she lives in a world that is dominated by mages, and she is the daughter of the queen and can't cast magic, or at least not well. And of course her mother is the queen, and as such doesn't exactly have time for her because she's busy running the kingdom. And she has a literal environmental crisis on her hands, too. I'm sure the Corrin thing didn't help, but you get my point. Thus, the brat slowly gets to evolve out of being a brat as she realizes that was never exactly who she wanted to be. It was the persona she adopted in order to try and get what she wanted. Duran, well, he's the braggart. He's someone who's just like, ha-ha, yes, I am the best, ha-ha, I'm amazing. And then he gets crushed like a bug. 
and he spends most of his the original part of his story arc basically just trying to get better and as again he goes throughout the game he starts to morph and change into someone who might actually be worthy of being called the son of loki which i know in other circumstances isn't exactly a compliment but you know the golden knight right um charlotte's an interesting example because she's the child now she is a child because she is half-elven. She literally is aging mentally and, and maturing emotionally at a different rate than a human would because of her half-elven status. I like that little touch, by the way. Once again, a little layer of believability on top of the rest of the story. But Charlotte, she as the child, she doesn't really change or evolve quite the same way the others do. Instead, what she is is someone who has a particular mentality of naivete and innocence which is effectively broken by the end of the game now the game portrays this as a positive thing that she took this endured it and became stronger as a consequence but by the end of the game regardless of her own emotional maturity you can tell this is someone who has been through a lot of crap and is no longer quite the child she once was which brings me to kevin kevin is interesting because he's the weakling now, I put that in quotes because he's the kind of person who... It was more about understanding himself than growing into a new person. He is not as physically strong as the other Beastmen, despite his own hulking out at the beginning of the game. And he is the kind of person who... His society is the kind of culture that will look at someone who is physically weaker, who is less capable of holding their own in a fight, and look at them as if they are worse as they are they're literally worthless it's it's part of their cultural divide your determine your strength your political affluence your uh, perspective within the clan within the within the pack is determined by how much you can do in a fight but kevin shows many times throughout the course of the game that he has a greater wisdom and ability to think beyond the ability of just this fight and this battle thus i say the weakling because he was never actually weak he was simply more cautious with his strength. That leads us to Hawkeye and Lise. Now, I mentioned them both together because both of them are probably the closest thing to your typical JRPG protagonists of the group. Lise is the stalwart, you know, brave, strong, courageous, I'm here to help people. Basically, your bog-standard typical JRPG protagonist. I don't have a lot to say about her, unfortunately. And nor do I have a lot to say about Hawkeye, because Hawkeye is the Han Solo. To, to, to say that as simply as possible, he is a uh, thief who is a good person. You know, the thief with the heart of gold kind of a concept. He is someone who, look. I mean, he, he the way he romanticizes and portrays his people, his kin of the Neveri Raiders, is as if they are a good force, that, they are, that they're not just people who steal and rob and plunder, but instead that they are freedom, that they, they, they exist in a way outside of the bounds of the aristocracy and all that. It's one of the reasons he gets so weirded out when the Flamecon decides, you know what, I want to become a kingdom too. Because that's against the very philosophy of everything they've ever uh, run for. Although both Lise and Hawkeye do share one trait, and that is they both have a lot of sincerity about how they approach it. Neither char both characters basically feels like they've already matured prior to the game, and then they have reached the point where they're at, and thus sincerely present themselves. Now I mention that, because that's an interesting contrast to their villains, which is the second reason I wanted to bring up these characters. I'm going to use uh, Bigu 
Bigot, I don't know, Isabella, as the example here, because Isabella is someone who, despite everything, is actually quite sincere in her presentation and easily receives the most characterization of that particular path of villainy. Um, she is someone who serves as an excellent contrast to both Lise and Hawkeye because she is basically them if they had different motives just like they would be her if she had different motives. Imagine for a moment, if you will, that she, rather than falling in love with the Dark Prince, <laughs> had instead fallen in love with, um, let's say, King Richard. That's probably a good example. Or someone who is a more decent and noble person. Can't you just picture her basically being a party member at that point? Being a playable character? I mean, in many ways, she acts like one. Which brings me to my next comparison. So we've got Kevin and Charlotte, and they are best compared against, well, debatable, but I would say best compared against Heath. Because here's the thing. Heath, again, of his triad, receives the most characterization. And he is someone who is effectively broken, completely mind-controlled, and thus reduced to a state of simplicity. There's not a lot of characterization to evil Heath because there is no character there. There is a robot that happens to be piloting Heath, and when Heath is released from it, the real Heath comes back out of that, which in my mind works well for Kevin, who is a simple-minded, you know, relatively innocent individual with his wisdom and, and, and you know, the strength thing, and then Charlotte, who is the child. Both of them have to face up against someone who is effectively a blank slate. And, of course, the final comparison is obvious. Duran, the braggart, and Angela, the brat, have to go up against Corin, the arrogant brat. <laughs> the guy who... Well, let's just say that it wouldn't surprise me at all, again, to keep this comparison going, that if the Dragon Emperor had given his... or Draconis, if you want to call him that, had given his deal to Angela in exchange for what he wanted, that we would be playing as Corin instead of Angela and that Angela would be doing everything that Corrin did. And frankly, although it doesn't quite apply the same way, I could see Duran making the same choices. This contrast helps to add characterization to the villains, which is very important. And as I was looking at the villains of this game, I noticed there's a weird pattern that emerges. So there's the three paths I mentioned earlier. There's the Dark Prince Path, the Dragon Emperor... Dra blah, blah, dragon... Dark Prince Path, Dragon Emperor Path, and the Masked Mage Path. All three of these have their main villain, and then their primary lieutenant, and then their secondary lieutenant. In almost every case, well, okay, in all three of these cases, the primary lieutenant receives the most characterization as an individual. That would be Begu, Corrin, and Heath. In, in all, each of these cases, one of them receives some characterization, usually in backstory, stuff that's not on camera. And then the other character receives a lot of screen time, but no characterization which is just a very strange uh, approach to, to, to the design of them. Now, you can tell why this happened. You don't have time when you're building a game this massive to, to build out a full uh, backstory for every character. But what's the backstory of Jagan, also known as the, uh, the evil-eyed Earl or whatever in the Japanese version? What's his backstory? What's his, what's his characterization? What's anything? Can you tell me anything about him? Now, I can assume something about him, it's literally from one line that she says, if they, if they aren't picked, if you aren't on the Dark Prince line. Uh, they mentioned how Jagan was just going to keep going on in the Dark Prince's name, and the implication is there that Jagan is someone who, you know, isn't really loyal to the Dark Prince, 
merely someone who happened to be working with him and planned to usurp him at some point or another. I mean, yeah, he's a vampire, and he's probably a direct Mavolian, a demon, if you will. But that's it. That's the only characterization he receives. Similarly, what's the characterization of uh, the, the Dragon Emperor? Despite being one of the main villains, all we know about him is that he wants to... He's a warmonger, um, and he's really, really strong. In fact, in lore, it's probable that he is actually the strongest, even though in gameplay he's the middle guy. It always irritated me that the Dark Lich was the easiest, but whatever. Which brings me to the third group. <laughs> What's the characterization of Death Jester? He's probably the most overt example of what I'm talking about. Death Jester gets a lot of screen time. And we know basically nothing about him, or indeed it. We don't know if he's a human. We don't know if he's a Mavolian. Uh, we don't know why he decided to follow the Masked Mage. Now, there are bits and pieces of information that we can use to try and puzzle together something here, which I'm going to go ahead and do for you because it's kind of a job, and I like talking about this sort of thing. I think Jagan is actually a Mavolian who is probably... Let's say he was the one working for Anise, uh, or the Medusa if you prefer, and decided to go ahead and switch paymasters and support the Dark Prince in his usurping of... Of, of the Mavolians, of, of the, uh, the demons. And in so doing, he was like, okay, I'll work for you now until I can usurp you. And Jagan is thus probably the person who is most directly responsible for um, leading the charge, if you will, on resurrecting the Dark Prince. Now, the Dark Prince himself... So I, you notice I didn't mention the Dark Prince... I didn't mention Loki, I didn't mention the Masked Mage. All of them get backstory and characterization off-camera. We do know a decent amount about the Dark Prince. He's probably the most narratively interesting villain, even though I personally find him uninteresting, if that makes any sense. Because the Dark Prince was a human. A, I shouldn't say an ordinary human, but he was an aristocrat. He was a king, or a prince, if you will, uh, the heir to the kingdom. And he was a tyrant and a dictator and a horrible human being. He was so horrible that he was actually approached by the Mavolians to say, Hey, we'll make you a deal. <laughs> you kill all these people, wreck your own kingdom, and we will serve you. And he actually did this, of course, because he's a disgustingly evil person, led this revolt against Anise, took over the Mavolian things, became the new archdemon, and then, well, and then was defeated. <laughs> but he also uh, is pretty, pretty much the individual who first used uh, the first monosword in order to seal the fate of Mavol and that whole thing. Um, if you're paying attention, that means the archdemon or Archdemon, if you prefer, the the leader of evil hell who literally wants to create a new... who wants to merge the normal world with the Mavolian realm, with Mavol, and in this merger craft a world where the demons run rampant and are worshipped by everyday people, was a guy. Was a more or less ordinary human being who just happened to be that sick and twisted and evil to accomplish all this. That's why I say I find him narratively interesting. So, the Dragon Emperor, well, we can't extrapolate a lot about him. We know that based on his presentation, he's really strong. Like I said, he probably was the most overall powerful entity from an in-lore perspective of the Triad. And he's someone who, to use an example, he was able to resurrect and bind Loki to him as Vader. I mean, the Darkshine Knight, 
with, with even despite having basically been on the verge of death, he also, in a weakened state, was able to enlighten Corrin. Now, I'm going to talk about Corrin a little bit more in a second, because I want to save Begu, Corrin, and Heath for later, because they're the most interesting characters uh, and most characterization. But he was able to accomplish all these things despite being in a weakened state. And he mentions how he wants to create a world full of chaos and destruction. To me, the Dragon Emperor is a... So I'm, I'm sorry, I, I should have mentioned this. The Dark Prince is a classic Type 4 villain. The Dragon Emperor is a classic Type 1 villain. There's not really a lot of motivation there. He's just, I am evil, destruction to all. I apologize about the, the grass tilling. They just started in the middle of this, and I hope they don't come too close to my window so I don't have to pause my recording for several minutes. Um... Yeah, I mean, come on, guys, really, today? I know it's a nice day out, but come on. Then we have the Masked Mage, uh, or the Dark Lich, if you will. Now, he is interesting because he, despite being relatively well fleshed out in his backstory, and even being present in a previous game, he's actually in Heroes of Mana as Belgar, uh, has almost no screen time at all. We learn a decent amount about him. And thus, he is a very classic Type 2 villain, because he was a priest of darkness. Now, I do have to pause for a moment and remind you guys that in the Mana setting, darkness isn't evil. It's not even close to evil, it's just darkness. Darkness and light are both just different representations of elemental power. So, he was literally the Oracle of Darkness, someone who was just part of his own uh, priesthood, along with the Priest of Light, his brother, I think. Pretty sure it was his brother. And it doesn't actually matter. The brotherly connection doesn't matter. The point being, he was a good guy. He was trying to help people. He tried to save this girl. He failed. She died. Now, what's interesting is he was desperate to save her and decided to start using dark magic to help saving her. That failed, so he decided to start using forbidden magic. Now, the translations, of course, are going to have issues with this, but it's pretty clear based on context that what this means is that he didn't actually descend into using dark magic, and that corrupted him. He started descending into forbidden magic, and that corrupted him. However, I have my own fan theory of that, if you'll forgive me for sharing. Why does the Death Jester follow Masked Mage? Why does the Death Jester help in any of this crap? He doesn't seem to have any motive other than making things worse and corrupting people. Well, funnily enough, if you think about it from the perspective of Death Jester being the one behind the Masked Mage, things kind of make a little bit more sense. To me, the driven but serious and compassionate man can fall to darkness. But it makes more sense to me that he falls to darkness because he is pushed there rather than simply using, you know, forbidden magic corrupts him. That just makes more sense to me personally. I think the Death Jester found him. I think he's a Mavolian. It makes sense. It would also explain why he's might be considered present later as a, uh, what is it, the Gourmand or whatever. Anyways, um, I think he found the Masked Mage, and he saw that level of despair in his soul, and saw that level of pain, and was like, we could have some fun with this one. And he started helping him and teaching him some of the more uh, unpleasant arts of magic, and basically just kind of wormed his way in there, turning the Masked Mage into what would eventually become the man who believes that all life must die. <laughs> Yay. As I said, I don't have just about anything to say about Death Jester or Jagan. They're there. But let's talk about the three real villains. So what I like most about Begu is 
she is a conniving snake who nevertheless has a shred of decency to her. It's really weird, actually. Um, she reminds me, I can't remember which it was. I was doing a rumination on something a couple months ago, and I was reminded of a character of this because her character philosophy is that this is what I want, and that is most important to me. Therefore, all other things are secondary to that. I am willing to do whatever it ha I have to do to procure what I want, but I am not willing to go above and beyond for the sake of petty cruelty. In other words, she is a more realistic and fleshed out version of evil rather than, <laughs> and then I will poison the puppy supply. <laughs> you know, she wants the Dark Prince. In fact, she flat out states she wants his soul back. It is very likely that when he made his deal with the former archdemon and then usurped him to become, usurped her to become the new arch, archdemon, that she decided, uh, you know, that, that his soul was gone, that he changed, and she is trying to uh, restore that to get him back. It wouldn't surprise me if she is actually a Mavolian herself, since she is listed as such in several uh, sources, and that she, as part of this deal, then met him, you know, basically that she came from a vault to, you know, to the planet and then met him, was like, oh, hey, dude, um, and fell in love, blah, blah, blah. Her motives are also most interesting when she's not the main villain. Uh, she does a lot of messed up stuff. You know, she kills Eagle. Uh, she uh, puts the necklace uh, around Jessica. Um, she sleeps with Flame Con in order to convert him. By the way, funny thing, if I may be so bold, while it's entirely possible that she uses magic on Flame Con, her, she doesn't really t lend herself towards magery. She's got her shape-shifting form, and she's got a couple of spells, but she's not a big mage like Death Jester or Heath or, uh, or, or, or Corrin, for example. Instead, she comes across as someone who is far more manipulative and conniving, which means she probably corrupted the Flamecon without having to cast a single spell, and I find something about that very amusing. And very believable. Again, it helps to add that layer of substance or complexity or believability or whatever you want to call it to the game. But if she loses, this is an interesting. Jagan is like, we must carry on. Bigu kills him. Bigu kills the vampire, or whatever the hell he is, the the the, the guy, and then flat releases Elliot because she lost. She can't have what she wants, so there's no reason to be petty or cruel henceforward. She even then kills herself because, after all, the one thing she wanted is no longer within her reach, so what's the point? Probably done in a moment of grief rather than rationale, but still something that's interesting in its own right. Corrin. Actually, let's talk about Corrin in a second. Let's talk about Heath really quick. Heath is also interesting because his inversion and lack of character would seem to go against him. But what we see in Heath is someone... So this is the other way Heath relates to Charlotte. Uh, and, and to an extent with uh, Kevin. Heath is someone who is so kind-hearted and innocent that being faced with the reality of how horrible things can be, he can't take it. He can't endure it at all. After the mind control is lifted from him and we see Heath again, he is so broken by where he is and what he has done that he commits suicide. <laughs> that the very concept of such a thing is so antithetical to everything he believes and thinks it makes me wonder excessively, because we do see bits and pieces about Heath throughout the course of the game. And there is an implication, which is never fully verified, that Heath is someone who was very, very cloistered. He's someone who literally does not know how the world is. 
And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, really. <laughs> Life might be a better place if more people didn't know how bad the world really was. But the point is that when he, he wasn't just confronted with, with that on like the news or a paper. No, he personally experienced just how upsetting and how blatant and, and disgusting and awful that the world can be. And he couldn't take it. And again, moment of grief, stab. Which, in a, in a way, kind of helps the final point of connecting him to Charlotte. Because she loses her child, you know, her childhood, basically, her childlike nature throughout the course of the game. She endures. He does not. Heath cannot endure that. But she could. And that brings me to Corin. The third character to commit suicide on character FTV. Uh, God damn! Um... <laughs> Suicide, it's everywhere. Suicide everywhere. Insert Toy Story meme here. Uh, Corin I find very interesting. See, there's a little bit of theory crafting I like I've I've done about Corin. I also have to admit I kind of attached to Corin as a character because when SD3 was first being worked on, a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, Jonathan, uh, he very much identified with Corin and his you know, his relatability and his character. And so he kind of you know, this is early days of the internet, obviously. He kind of took on the persona of Corin in his internet do in dealings on, on AOL and whatnot. And uh, I thought that was kind of cool, you know, and so I kind of got more into the character than I otherwise would because of his connection to it. Corin is someone who is, I think, extremely relatable of all of the villains we see because Corin, it's not like he has this one thing that he cares about. And it's not like he is completely innocent, like both Bagu and Heath, respectively. Instead, he is someone who is a nobody. No, not like Kingdom Hearts. I mean, he's just a guy. And he's actually, he's actually worse than just a guy. He's a pathetic guy. His own teachers get frustrated with him, and he is looked down upon in a society that frowns upon the two things he is not. He is male as opposed to female, and he is a mundane instead of a mage, in a kingdom ruled by female mages. And he is scorned and bullied and put down into a very dark place emotionally and socially. And of the motives of the three characterized villains, I think that one is the most understandable. The desire to be... It doesn't even have to be, like, over the top. It doesn't have to be villainous. It doesn't... I'm sure most of you could understand what it's like to want to be better at whatever. At video games, at sports, at work, uh, with your friends, with your loved ones, with your family. Um, better looking or, or more financially successful or whatever. Better, right? I'm sure most of you could understand that desire. And that how that desire can get worse the more it is restricted from you. The more you fail at obtaining it. Corrin is someone who, by all accounts, really threw himself into his studies and failed miserably. Now, this is when we get into a little bit of theory crafting, because one thing that's never quite sat well with me is the Dragon Emperor is just so mega-powerful that he can just imbue Corrin with mega-super-magery. He is by far the most powerful mage in the game. Uh, he, he casts a ludicrous number of spells, and he has tremendous mastery over all of them. In fact, he can cast from almost all of the eight elements. That's impressive as hell. And you can't tell me that just comes from the Dragon Emperor. I know, I know. Super strong, blah, blah, blah. But still, never quite sat well with me. But then I was reminded of something. Angela also didn't really know magic and was basically incompetent until a moment of severe emotional and personal distress was put upon her. And in that 
In that moment of crisis, her magic basically erupted, and she could suddenly cast spells. And then, as she goes throughout the rest of the game, that magic is is honed and empowered, especially as she encounters the Monostones, and she becomes one of the strongest mages in the setting. Uh, also as virtue by being one of the main characters. But you get my point. <laughs> I think Corrin was the same way. I think if Corrin had kept at it, he would have eventually hit that crisis point and unlocked whatever Majory was unlocked with him. That he had the potential to be the, the Red Lotus Wizard, regardless of the Dragon Emperor. However, in his despair, the Dragon Emperor was able to manipulate him and say, Tell you what, give me a piece of your soul. Just a little piece. And in exchange, I will grant you this great power. This makes this more tragic, then, because that means that Corrin didn't need to make this deal to accomplish what he wanted. Instead, he could have... Obviously, he didn't know this, but he could have just kept going on. So he gives up a piece of his soul. Now, I've heard some people question why he gave up his soul. To me, it makes perfect sense. Based on the way souls are presented within the setting as a whole, and the game in particular, souls are kind of who you really are at your core. Removing a piece of who you are leaves you more of a uh, caricature of yourself and the, also more susceptible to external manipulation. It could be argued that Death Jester was kind of, shall we say, snacking on Heath during the course of his corruption of him as well, given that he not only has displays the ability to do that, but it would help to explain how he was able to keep him under control. That also leads to some unfortunate implications that Heath at the end was actually missing part of his soul, but moving on. The Corrin we knew, the Corrin we know throughout the course of the game is a cruel, arrogant bastard. But it's pretty clear that almost all of that is because of the fact that he is being twisted from whatever he really is into this shape by the Dragon Emperor. When we see the real Corrin, we hear about him in, in dialogue in the backstory and when, his, when we finally defeat him, what we see is a humble individual who is also quite, quite kind basically twisted and, and distorted into this new shape. And that also fits with what the Dragon Emperor does in general. Remember, he literally took a corpse of his greatest enemy and twisted and warped it into a new shape to serve him. This is the closest thing we have to some kind of motivation or characterization for the Dragon Emperor, I might add. The desire to, to uh, let's call it, warp and distort and corrupt physically and literally corrupt everything around him into something that will be more horrible. Because he's evil. <laughs> Puppies. <laughs> Seriously, though. <laughs> I mean that with sincerity. Because he does it with the body of the Darkshine Knight, Loki, and he does it with the soul of Corrin. Now... I also have to admit that I love Corrin's final speech. You know, look, I, I, there's just a little piece. How could I say no? And look what's become of me without that one little piece. And then he kills himself. Once again, wouldn't surprise me at all if the Dragon Emperor had reached out to Angela instead. And Angela had taken that deal and, well, yeah. So... I don't actually have a lot to say about the plot of the game. It's well constructed, you know. You know, that whole thing that I was just describing earlier. Um, but I feel a lot of the emphasis... Like I said, they, ha they set up the war plots, and then they basically ignore them for the rest of the game. This game is all about the characters, which is why I've been talking about the characters for the last however long this, this recording has been going on for. I do want to mention one thing about the plot that I find amusing. 
So you have to go fight the God Beasts, or the Mana Beasts, or the Bonobodons, or whatever you want to call them. All three are valid terminologies. And each one of them is a representative of one of the eight elements of mana. The last one you have to fight being... <laughs> Mr. Dark. Um, Zablefar. Or Zablefair? I don't know. The point, though, being... They come across... They mention in the backstory how they're these wonderfully destructive beasts and rampaged out of control until they were brought back under control by the monster, blah, blah, blah. Um, and yet when we see them in other games, they are benevolent and, in fact, are trying to help maintain the balance of the world, which makes me think maybe we're having an FF7 kind of thing here. You remember the weapons in FF7? Emerald weapon, ruby weapon, diamond weapon, uh, sapphire, uh, ultima, and I think that's it. You know, all the weapons... I feel like it's the same thing. They aren't actually innately evil. They're not even innately destructive. They just happen to be force, literal forces of nature that are here to keep things in balance. It wouldn't surprise me if the reason they were raging once upon a time was because things were out of balance. This would keep in with the general theme of Mana's series in general, the balance between people and nature, as well as with the conclusion of Secret of Mana, with the Mana Beast being the final boss, spoiler alert, because of the fact that things are in balance, and now the Mana Beast is going to try and destroy everything again, and we have to stop him. I get the same general impression of the way they present it here. But I also have to admit that I can't stand those fights from a gameplay perspective. I mean, it, if the game was better designed, I would probably like them better. But you fight, you can fight them in basically any order, the first uh, seven. And each one you fight makes the other ones level up. And then so, as you fight them, they get worse and worse and worse and worse. And then, of course, Dark is going to be the last one you fight. And that's usually directly tied into going to the second-to-last dungeon, which actually isn't the last dungeon. But it, everything about it feels like the last dungeon. Eh. <laughs> it makes... The other th reason I wanted to comment on this, though, is at the end of the game, Mana basically vanishes from the world temporarily. No explanation is properly given for that. The way mana is usually approached in the series is that mana is something that is an aspect of life, right? It's not something you can just remove, otherwise the world literally wouldn't work the same way. But if mana really is that kind of a thing, how can it be absent for thousands of years, or however long it actually is, between this game and Secret of Mana? To me, because I like to think about this sort of thing, it makes more sense that rather than mana being removed from the world, it is, shall we say, subsumed. The idea here is that mana is kind of like the force. It's, in, it's no midichlorians. It's infused within everyone, right? It is a part of every living thing, and the interactions between these living things help to craft and design it. But the mana tree, the mana beast, the other specific nexi of mana, are the things that help to manifest it, and make it more predominant, make it more to the surface, if you will. Again, to use the life, to use FF7 as a parallel, think about Medeal and the fact that there's literally life stream that comes up near Medeal. It's, it, life stream is everywhere on the planet, but in some places, it's physically predominant, right? So to me, what I feel is that this mana is going to be withdrawn a little bit and poured into the tree in order to restore a new tree, and once the tree is there to help regulate mana more properly, mana will be redistributed throughout the world. That's just the kind of way I think of it. Um, I also like to think... <laughs> I, I've headcanoned the hell out of these games. I like to think that there's not that big of a gap between SD3 and SD2, you know, SD3 and SOM, um, because to me it would make sense that someone basically accidentally stumbled across the mana tree in the Holy Land. It was like, ooh... 
and you know, oh, let's figure out how to make this work. And hey, mana. And then they build the massive technological civilization, which is then destroyed <laughs> in the uh, the videos that we see back in Secret of Mana. My thoughts. I hope you guys have liked this rumination. Uh, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Someday we may actually get an English release of this freaking game. Or any release outside of Japan. But until we do, I will see you guys next time.